0: Welcome to All About Amadovar, an introduction to loving the films of Pedro Almodóvar. I'm Ingu Kang, a critic at the Hollywood Reporter, and I'm here with my Kika of co-hosts, Daniel Schrader, a podcast producer at Slate.com. Hi Daniel.
1: I don't talk that much. <laughs> hey Ingo.
0: So This is the first of our bonus episodes, and today we are going to discuss 1993's Kika and 2011's The Skin I Live In. Originally, the theme of our episode was going to be Almodovar's worst, as in the film considered by many to be his worst Kika, and the film that perhaps should be considered his worst because upon first viewing, Daniel hated The Skin I Live In.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a tough watch.
0: Although I think you like it more now.
1: I guess. We'll get into it. All
0: right. It. Okay. So um, I think we're going to revise, and the theme of this episode is going to be um, the worst ickiest films, for better or for worse. Also, these two films ended up having quite a bit of connective tissue, so it makes a lot of sense for us to talk about them in relation to each other. Please be warned that we are going to discuss both films in their entirety, and I don't think it's really possible to fully spoil an overstuffed like turducken of a film like Kika, but the skin I live in definitely hinges on a big twist two-thirds of the way through, so that's your spoiler warning. So Kika is a film I'd actually avoided watching for nearly two decades. Because I had first heard about it from my Spanish p- film professor as a movie with an extended rape scene that Almodovar tries to make funny. And then it turns out uh, that is the only scene that works in the movie, at least at least for me.
1: Yeah, I can't disagree.
0: Star Veronica 4K won a Goya or the Spanish Oscar for Best Actress. But even by Amadovar's own admission, her character, Kika, is more of a passenger than the engine of the film's plot. 4K also had a supporting role in What Have I Done to Deserve This, which honestly feels like it could be the tagline for Kika's character. So Daniel, uh, my husband's family has this thing where, (laughs) because he tends to sort of like drone on and on, uh, they say, you have three sentences with which to say the thing that you want to say. So I'm going to give you three sentences to summarize all of Kika.
1: Go. How many clauses do I get?
0: You can have as many clauses (laughs) as you want.
1: Great. Uh, So Kika is vaguely about Kika, a uh, beautician who is telling the story of a past love of hers to a be- to a beauty class that she is giving as the film opens uh, it's like a murder mystery comedy about these two men in Kika's life one who she becomes engaged to and one who she is sleeping with who are themselves entangled in a plot about I, see like I'm already lost Um <laughs> All right, that's two sentences. You can have one more. I mean, broadly, it's a movie about a woman who, like, lets everything slide off of her back, regardless of what happens to her, and just keeps moving forward, uh, and just says, like, well, that happened every single time.
0: Yeah. Um, I think really important to know that the movie basically begins with a woman who is dead in a bathroom, and she has just shot herself in the heart, or at least that is what we are told to believe. And her American novelist husband, played by Peter Coyote, who's um, apparently whose performance was so bad that Amadova just dubbed over him entirely.
1: Well, and if I recall, like, I, at least I thought you remember maybe you telling me this or me reading about it, but like, he, Peter Coyote, like, put in a shit ton of work to like, learn the Spanish and like, record the whole movie. And then... He, Pedro hated it so much that he dubbed over it.
0: Yes, a hilarious power move. Um, <laughs>
1: and dubbed and then, over with the voice of Yvonne from Women on the Verge of Nervous Breakdown.
0: So at one point, Kika had been sleeping with that guy, and then she ends up engaged to his stepson, Ramon. So basically, she's sort of like stuck between stepdad and stepson, which I mean, I feel like that already gives you like a lot of who Kika is. Um, I have a really great quote about the character from Amadovar. He said, Kika is 36 and behaves as if she were 16. And I think that it's a little bit funny that we have not actually discussed a fourth character who is extremely instrumental in this movie. Uh, Andrea... Cara Cortada, which basically, the subtitles that we watched uh, gave her name as Andrea Scarface, but it actually means, like, Andrea Cutface. And she's played by Victoria Abril. She's basically sort of, like, Jake Gyllenhaal's Nightcrawler, but, like, 20 years ago. A sort of, like, stringer for the kind of, like, local news stories of, like, if it leads, if it bleeds, it leads, that kind of thing. She has, like, the most fantastical costumes in this movie, I think the costumes are almost worth watching this, like, extremely messy movie for.
1: Yeah, and the costumes were designed by Jean-Paul Gaultier. They're, like, literally perfection. And I think that the costumes and the performance of Veronica are what make the movie watchable in any way.
0: Yeah, I feel like it's pretty safe to say that this is probably Amadovar's worst acted movie, like, 4K is, like, wonderful, but, like, the guy who plays Ramon is, like, a complete, like, black hole of charisma. We already talked about, like, what happened with P- Peter Coyote. Victoria Abril is actually quite good, but she, like, doesn't really... But it's because she's the- a
1: supporting character.
0: Sure. And I think she, like... It's a little bit, like, one-dimensional in, like, the thing that she's doing, which is to basically, like, play a voyeuristic monster who is not above, say, on her television show, like, showing, like, a literal snuff film of, like, a man shooting his wife in a cemetery after he's, like, raped and killed their daughter. Like, she's just, like, the worst of humanity. Of course, Amadovar um, took inspiration from American television in order to create the Victoria Abril character.
1: Yeah, so, it's like you're watching like a a very grim version of Jerry Springer or something.
0: Yes. And then there is like a scene where Kika is raped in the middle of the movie and Andrea somehow gets footage of the rape and then shows it on television.
1: What I was going to say actually about your line that Almodovar says that she's 36 but she's 16 she actually kind of says something like that to Ramon when he proposes to her and she says like, Oh no, I'm too mature for you. And he says, I love mature women. And then she s- immediately turns around and says, Oh, but I'm so immature. And he says something like, I love immaturity. And so like, <laughs> she is sort of aware of how like old and young she is. And that's just kind of like, her constant energy makes up for any type of perceived age.
0: Yeah, because there's yeah. like a pretty big. I think we're supposed to believe that there's like maybe like a ten year difference between them because Ramon's the younger one, but he's like a very serious guy, whereas she's just sort of like a gibbet, Basically, I was trying to think of like an American analog for Veronica Four K in this. She has this sort of like statuesque height and like this like these like very soft features and then she has this like sort of like seductive baby voice like I thought of Jennifer Tilly
1: um
0: I thought of like Katie Mixon
1: I think Jennifer Tilly's a great answer
0: yeah there's a sort of like innocence to her that like is like immediately lovable I also thought of, like, Anna Camp a little bit. Like, she also has, like, those, like, very soft features. Um, And then, like, that, like, baby voice. But I think Anna Camp is maybe
1: more I'm a very sexy baby.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a very, like, winsome combination. Which I think is... Wait, do you have more to say about Kika?
1: She's just really... It never seems like she has a plan for anything. But is always along for the ride
0: everything is water off a duck's back
1: yes she's Jinx Monsoon (laughs)
0: Um, I think that quality also is very sort of instrumental to the way that this like extremely notorious rape scene
1: works oh it's only funny because of her
0: yes So the setup for the rape scene is that Kika is living with Ramon who is rich. They have a housekeeper who is played by Rossi De Palma. And Rossi De Palma sort of like tells Kika this like very crazy story where she says, I have this like porn star brother. He's sort of like, I think that the phrase that they use is mentally deficient, obviously this is like 1993 politics. Um, so basically, um, she sort of says, like, her brother would go, like, raping all of these, like, girls in their little small town, and she wanted to put a stop to it, so she would just let her brother fuck her, and, like, that was, like, not, like, a big deal to her, I guess, because she wasn't, like, it's, like, a very, like, 1980s, like, Almodovarian kind of, like, move to say, like, Oh, like, my stupid, like, brother with, like, his, like, mental problems. I just, like, let him fuck me. Like, I, you know, like, the way that one does.
1: Boys will be boys.
0: (laughs) So we watched this, like, weird, horrifying footage of basically these, like, Christian pilgrims who are, like, whipping their own backs and then also having these like holes punctured into their backs as part of a religious ceremony and then it turns out that like one of those people was actually Juana's brother Paul who comes inside Kika's home she says like oh like take whatever you want like this guy's really rich like it doesn't really matter to me but like tie me up and then like beat me up a little bit so that like it looks like I wasn't in on it so she gets tied up. She gets gagged. She uh, is basically knocked unconscious. And then Paul discovers that Kika is sleeping, and basically proceeds to rape her. Man, this scene! I think it be- this like rape scene basically begins with like him first like inserting like an orange slice. Yeah,
1: he um he sits down on the bed and sees a, like, newspaper article with his photo on it. Next to it is a plate of, like, a peeled orange. And so he then takes the orange slice, sucks on it, and then inserts it into her vagina, and then eats it. And then crawls on top of her.
0: Yes. And basically, I think their first lines together is she wakes up while she's being raped and she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm fucking you. And It's sort of like, we sort of like cut to like a different scene and then come back to it. And the scene just sort of like goes on and on and on. And it ends up being funny because she's sort of like partly trying to negotiate with him. And then also partly sort of just like sick of being raped. And so she's sort of like, when are you finishing? Like, this is so tiresome. I wrote down some of the lines. She's like, this is real rape. And she says, you are drooling all over me. And then, like, at a later point, because, like, he's already come twice, but he wants to come two more times inside her. She's like, at least I have gotten bored of your dick. And then she, like, complains that, like, she can't go to, like, the bathroom. And she's like, you better not have given me, like, like a disease. Yeah. Like, are we going to be
1: here all day?
0: (laughs) Yes. It's like extremely that energy. And then she says at one point, like, you come one more time and then you leave. Because she's trying to, like, assert some sort of, like, control over the situation. Meanwhile, at some point, Juana wakes up, like, while still tied to the chair, comes into the room and sort of, like, watches this whole rape happen. um, Which sort of just, like, adds to its, like, farcical nature because...
1: Well, and (laughs) speaking of the farcical nature, like, he's threatening her with an... he's threatening... Uh, Kika with a knife while he's raping her but the knife is like a butter knife it's like a kitchen knife it doesn't seem like sharp in any way and so it's not actually threatening but it is and so that also adds to the comedic effect I think and that like You're saying all this dialogue that she has, and I think that's actually one of the most notable parts about it, is that she's talking her way through this. And that's kind of how she exists, is she talks through everything. She's a constant motor mouth. And that's part of what makes it so funny, is that like even when she's being raped, she just can't stop talking. Then even like we have some cops show up at one point, because a voyeur who's been watching Kika from across the street or whatever for who knows how long calls in that she is being raped and the cops are like i don't know should we go should we not one cop who's like yawning the whole time is talking about like how he's gotten plastic surgery and should i get collagen injections in my lips or whatever and the other cops like no we're gonna go do this we're gonna figure it out and see what's going on and they get there and they run into the room too and so now like Everybody is in the room together and they crawl on top of Kika and Paul and are trying to pull him off of her and it's just like it does like feel a like a farce. It's like a three
0: person operation because he's just like this like energizer bunny sort of like like jack like hammer type of like fucker, I guess. And so like they have like a really hard time like pulling him off of her and I, we've talked so many times about how, like, a lot of Almodovar movies bear no resemblance to reality most of the time, and there's sort of, like, an emotional truth of, like, the characters that sort of makes his films uh, feel really accomplished, um, and obviously that's not really here, but if his aim was to try to make rape funny, um, I don't know, like, I laughed. (laughs)
1: he didn't fail he didn't fail it's and then it even ends in like what i think is one of the most disgustingly funny ways is that like paul then jumps on the balcony right at right outside of the house because for uh, right outside right outside of the apartment because for other reasons the person above them who is um Peter Coyote's character is like moving out or whatever. And so there's like stuff going up and down on a pulley. He jumps up onto the balcony, ejaculates, which then falls onto Victoria Abril's face, who is staring up at it because she's shown up with her video camera and stuff because somebody's called to tell her that she needs to capture this footage for her TV show. The cum lands on her face and she just wipes it off. And then he arrives and he like comes down to the ground and she says, do you want to run run away with me on my motorcycle? And, like, is totally unfazed by just, like, getting ejaculated on. It's very funny in such a weird way.
0: Yeah. I think we get, like, a little bit of, like, Kika's uh, traumatic after effects where she's, like, sort of cranky around other people and she, like, is drinking um, and sort of, like, picking fights with Ramon and picking fights with her friends. But... Both Andrea and Kika are just women who are so completely, and you could say like unrealistically unflappable. And I think that part of the joy of like Kika, the character, is that she that's sort of just like how she exists. Uh, should we talk about sort of like the dead endiness of like every other aspect of this movie?
1: Oh, totally. Um, I think that like there are so many plots going on in this movie and yet Almodovar gives us like the worst payoffs of every single one that it's just like really a disappointing watch by the end of it because you're like, wait, I sat through two hours for this.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, I think the movie sort of, like, sets you up in the very first, like, in basically, like, the first five minutes of the movie that Peter Coyote's novelist character probably did murder his wife and, like, framed it as a suicide. And so you sort of, like, torturously get back to that plot line at, like, the very end. But, like, you don't really care.
1: And he's been, like, writing a novel about, like, the lesbian killer or, like, whatever. And that's, like, a story that's people are wondering, is it based on real life, or is it not? And you just kind of like forget about that for so much time.
0: Yeah. And it doesn't help anything that Peter Coyote and the guy who plays Ramon, uh, basically just have like no chemistry They have like no energy between each other. And so they're supposed to be, they're supposed to be these like two men who are like extremely bound by both their sexual relationships to Kika, and also their obsessions, in a sense, with, like, the dead mother. And, like, you don't really get any of that. And so, this movie sort of ends a little bit like Hamlet, where, except for Kika, like, eventually everyone ends up dead. Like, the
1: novel...
0: (laughs) The novelist and Victoria Brill's character sort of, like, end up killing each other. Um, Ramon is killed by the novelist.
1: You... Um, well, no. Ramon is, uh, Ramon finds the dead body of another woman that Peter Cody's character has killed. And he basically has like a heart condition that has plagued him forever. And he kind of like goes comatose from that. And so we think that he's dead. Because actually that's the first way that we meet him at the beginning of the film is that, Peter Coyote's character, which I love that we don't even remember his name at this point. It's um, Nicholas. Nicholas uh, calls Kika and is like, hey, can you come over and do the makeup of my dead stepson? And so she arrives to do that. And it turns out that he's actually alive. And that's how their whole relationship starts. So Kika arrives at this country house where all of these murders are happening. And Nicholas, I guess, has put Ramon's body on the bed And just figures, oh, he's dead. Great. I don't have to worry about that. Though, of course, like if I had had a stepson who had a heart condition, I would have just put a put a bullet in him just to be safe. But that's just me. That is you. Yes. (laughs) So she arrives and like those people are dead. And then she realizes that like Ramon maybe isn't dead. And so she like takes a lamp unscrews like a light bulb out of it and then puts it on his big toe and shocks him back to life like a defibrillator. And of course, because it's an Amadora movie, it works and comes back to life. And it's so weirdly funny. And like, a, of course, Kika would think of this, but like <laughs> this is not a thing that is real. And she calls the ambulance. They come pick him up. And then she like with all of these, things, Bo's tied up, and she's like, I'll follow you in the ambulance. I'll I'll be right behind you. She gets in her car, follows the ambulance until she encounters a guy whose car is, like, pulled over on the side of the road, and he asks for help, and she's like, sure, I can help you out. He hops in, and they drive away together, and she's completely just, like, forgotten everything that has happened before. And that's kind of, like, how we have to treat the film, I think, because, like, for me, I finished the film the first time we watched it, uh, loving it. Because of how it ended. Because Kika was so willing to just like hit the restart button on this terrible experience that she had. And I think that that's kind of like what we have to do as viewers to like actually appreciate this movie is to be willing to forget everything it subjected us to.
0: Or we could just not appreciate the movie.
1: Well, but I think that there is actually a lot to appreciate. I think that this is his most camp film he's ever made.
0: Wow. That is truly a statement.
1: I, well, I just think that there's a level of distance and artificiality in this film that I think in some ways was unintentional. That makes it perfectly camp. Like the decision to dub over Peter Coyote. (laughs) That is a camp decision. Making
0: him an American novelist while having no trace of an American accent in his Spanish.
1: Exactly. Almodovar having his mother in the film as, like, a TV show host who is, like, interviewing Nicholas, but is also just, like, not good at interviewing because she's just, like, an old woman reading off of a piece of paper. Like, I mean, she's fine. She's not a bad actress or whatever, but, like, there's this, like... Attempt at something that is so specific that even when it fails, it still—I don't want to say works, but it still functions in the realm of camp. If that makes sense, I feel
0: like this is a '90s Almodovar movie that feels like a '80s Almodovar movie. It feels like a uh, pre-Women on the Verge movie, and like all of those movies are super messy. They're plotless. They're chaotic. They're, like, very unevenly acted. I think that they are they can be fun sort of, like, in small bursts. But, like, overall, at least for me, like, the feeling is sort of like, oh, like, I'm really looking forward to what all of this eventually adds up to. And, yeah, that's really, like, the best I can say is that it feels like an Almodovar 1985 movie.
1: But, I mean, I would take this level of disorganized chaos and overstuffed nonsense over like high heels any day which has the like I think the same level of visual quality as um Kika does there's like 90s almodovar is a very specifically beautiful aesthetic yes but his movies in the early 90s are so lacking in, like, actual heart. And I think that, like, Kika, because of Veronica 4K, it, like, rises above whatever High Heels was trying to do.
0: I think I would be more inclined to agree with you if it did not feel like she was only in, like, a third of the movie.
1: Oh, I mean, I think that we should just cut most of the non-her out and it would be a good movie.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If she was in, like, two-thirds of the movie, I would be like, sure. Like, go look for this, like, undiscovered gem or this, like, underrated. um, So
1: what you're saying is everybody should just go watch the rape scene?
0: (laughs) I don't really feel like... I mean, I think that the rape scene works, but I don't think that the rape scene is, like, so XYZ, so transgressive or so... Like technically accomplished or whatever, that like it needs to be seen. Like it's really well done for what Almodovar was trying to do at the time. But I don't feel like the experiment of like what he's trying to do is so worthy that like people need to go rediscover it.
1: Yeah, this is a movie for Almodovar completists, not for people looking for a good movie.
0: And that's why it's in the bonus episode.
1: Exactly. The
0: Skin I Live In was the first reunion between Amadovar and star Antonio Banderas in 21 years. In the last movie they'd made before that, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, which we have covered in an episode, Banderas also played a kidnapper whose victim suffers from Stockholm Syndrome. Thankfully. The emotional and narrative maturity that Almodovar has gained in those two decades allowed him to write a much more resonant story about a relationship that begins with a violent abduction. For an Almodovar film, The Skin I Live In is also notable in its chilliness and lack of color. I would classify it as a horror-mystery-melodrama. Almodovar himself has called it a horror story without screams and frights. The Skin I Live In is adapted from Thierry Jonquet's novel Tarantula, and it won Best Film not in the English language at that year's BAFTAs. It was also nominated for the Palme d'Or, the most prestigious prize at Cannes, as well as a whopping sixteen Goyas, with Elena Anaya winning Best Actress and Jan Cornet winning Best New Actor. So, wanna Talk about this crazy, crazy film, Daniel. Tell me what happens.
1: Okay, so The Skin I Live In is about a mad scientist, Robert Lagarde, played by Antonio Banderas, who is obsessed with developing a burn-resistant skin for use on burn victims. It, the film's in three parts. It starts in the present and then shifts back to the past halfway through and then returns to the present for the final third of the film. As it opens, he has one patient or prisoner, Vera, played by Elena Anaya, on his estate, who he is testing these pig-derived skin grafts on to prove their effectiveness. While he's away one day, his housekeeper's son tricks his way onto the property, ties up his mother, the housekeeper, played by Marissa Paredes, and rapes Vera, mistaking her for Robert's late wife, with whom he had an affair. Robert comes home and shoots the rapist in bed, saving Vera. In the film's second section, which shifts back to six years ago, we learn that the reason the doctor is so interested in skin is that his wife became covered in burns after running away with the housekeeper's son and then got into a fiery car wreck. When she finally sees how grotesque she looks from these burns, she throws herself out of a window to her death, a suicide witnessed by her preteen daughter Norma, played by the terrible Blanca Suarez. (laughs) Norma is never the same again. A few years later, she and her father are at a wedding where she goes off with a boy, Vicente, played by Jan Cornet, into the garden where he tries to have sex with her. Midway through the sex, Norma starts to say no, but Vicente doesn't get off her. She bites his fingers hard and won't let go, and he knocks her out to free himself. When her father comes upon her unconscious body and rouses her, she begins screaming, convinced her father is the one who sexually violated her. She becomes increasingly troubled and ends up killing herself the same way her mother did, throwing herself out of a window. Intent on getting revenge on Vicente, who he believes raped his daughter, Robert kidnaps him and operates on him, giving him a vaginoplasty, and eventually transforming him into the image of his late wife with the new name Vera. After years in captivity, Vera convinces Robert that she wants to be with him, and he should give her more freedom. Lulling him into a false sense of security, Vera pulls out a gun and shoots Robert and the housekeeper, and then flees back to her mother's dress shop, where she reveals she is Vicente.
0: So why did you hate this movie? (laughs) Do you remember?
1: Yes. And I've actually, I remember, so I've now watched this two and a half times. Because before we watched it together the first time, I started it on my own and quit at the scene where Norma gets knocked out and wakes up and thinks she's being raped. Because I was just like, this is disgusting. There's too much rape happening. I don't really love this. It just makes me uncomfortable and is gross. It also was before I had seen all of Pedro's work and understood less of what exactly I think he was working with here. Um, But then when we watched it together and we got all the way to the um, surgeries and him basically enforcing a transition onto this man, I was really disgusted by that. Mm -hmm. It made me like viscerally uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of that has to do with, like, it felt very transphobic. And, like, I still think that, like, that came through in the second viewing that we did where where I actually ended up liking a lot of the movie this last time we watched it just, like, two days ago um, or just yesterday. But I still think that what I felt was unaware transphobia of the film really makes a lot of the rest of it more rotten than it should be and we should talk about the movie as a whole of course but I think that like as I believe you've said in past episodes as you've told me like Almodovar isn't necessarily ever interested in the trans experience yeah it feels like there is no appreciation or understanding of like what he's actually subjecting this man to and also that like how disgusting it is to treat a gender transition as a like form of torture, a form of punishment that like really icked me out. And of course maybe I'm looking at this as a through a 2020 lens as opposed to like a 2011 lens when Almodovar made this and also he's so much older than me and everything so like he certainly has different uh Views I assume, on, like, gender and sexuality than I do or than, like, the modern day does. But, like, it just felt so unwilling to look at what it was actually saying about medical transitions, in a way. Not that I think it's out to say anything broad about it, but I do think that it is a really ugly portrayal of this as a like thing that a horrible thing to have done to someone to have done to you if that makes sense
0: yeah I mean it's also a horror movie and the person who's doing it is like a demented person
1: yes certainly
0: so I understand where you were coming from I tried to look for trans uh, perspectives on this film, and I actually did not find a lot. Um, If anyone listening to this wants to send me anything, I am totally open to reading it. Um, I did find one blog entry that I want to, like, sort of uh, quote because I had sort of had, like, a sort of, like, in coate sort of like thoughts about this and this person uh sort of like like developed them a lot more and so uh i thought it was sort of like worth sharing so this is gina Morvay and her blog is skip the makeup um i believe she is a trans woman and the blog is sort of dedicated to trans perspectives on film so if i'm reading Morvay correctly I think that her argument, and probably my argument, is that it is a film that sort of like exploits in a kind of cis whore at the idea of uh, sex change. I don't want to say gender reassignment surgery because it's not that. Like, it's not about, so, it, it's not about like a patient's uh, self concept, right? Um, and so I'm just going to call it a sex change because it's something that like is. Intensely sort of like genital centric, and we will also talk about that. It's such a well, also
1: because like he is transforming Vicente into a specific person,
0: yes. And so, uh, Gina Morve says, Don't expect any reality about transition in the skin I live in, it flips over issues like hair removal, voice surgery, skeletal structure. It's a fantasy view. In which transition is about getting a sex change and a neo pussy, and then you become a woman, kind of. And so I think what Morvay is saying is that it sort of traffics in this like horror at what some trans people want to undergo. Um, And yeah, there is like not a super amount of sympathy for that, but it's also not really a movie about, I guess, like, sort of, like, how we generally conceive of uh, actual trans people, because Vicente doesn't want any of this, and it is a kind of, I I think even the fact that, like, Vicente doesn't seem, like, there's, like, not really, like, a scene in which, like, Vicente sort of freaks out at, like, the fact that, like, someone chopped off his dick.
1: I mean, there is, though. like, I think there is, but the way that the whole film, everything in this film is so muted in that way. Like, he ha- you have the moment of horror when he wakes up from the surgery and is told that he got a vaginoplasty. And then you have the really uncomfortable moment of um, when he, like, stands on the chair to, like, open his robe and look at his new genitals,
0: Yes, but like there's not like a dwelling on it. There's like, we don't really get like a big sense of interiority with Vicente. And like, honestly, for me, it makes a lot more sense to call that character Vicente as opposed to Vera, since Vera is a name that was given to him by Robert. And I think that for me at least, the reason why this film really worked for me. Is that it seems to me a film about Stockholm Syndrome. Um, I think that you can definitely have like multiple readings of this movie, but the way that like I read it was that basically uh, Vicente or Vera was so sort of like traumatized by all of these surgeries and about sort of being captured in this house. And essentially forced to live in like near solitary confinement and being sort of like someone's like personal guinea pig and then also having your torturer like fall in love with you like all of those things basically added up to a kind of Stockholm Syndrome. And then it's only at the very end of the movie when he sees a picture of his former self and reads something about, like, how his mother really misses him, that, like, the sort of, like, fog of Stockholm Syndrome wears off, and then he kills Robert and, like, goes back to, like, who he was. Um, And so even though... He has sort of, like, the body, I guess, of, like, a trans woman. I don't really feel like he ever sort of, like... Like, we don't get, like, a sense of, like, you know, what kind of pronouns Vicente or Vera prefers. Like, there's sort of, like, very little about, like, this person's gender identity.
1: I I don't know if I agree with you necessarily about the Stockholm Syndrome of it all, because I always felt like he was trying to get out and trying to find a way out. I think that there's a signal of that when he is stuck alone in his room and is watching the like scrolling through the channels and comes upon a like yoga channel where the yoga instructor is talking about like there is a place inside of you that nobody else can um, take from you that is like your safe place And it takes a lot of practice to stay there and to create that. And that's what yoga is for. But, like, there is a way to stay you, regardless of what somebody else does to you.
0: And I think that, like, that's, like, a point at which, like, we agree about our readings of the film. Because it does seem to be about someone who is sort of, like has all of these, like, external things done to their body and, like, forces them to, like, not only be trapped inside this house, but, like, trapped inside a body that they don't want. And yet, like, the core of them is, like, ultimately the same. And, like, by the end, like, they get to sort of return to, like, the place that they call home.
1: All this said, and, like, I I still viscerally react to the way that the sex change is forced upon him. I still think that actually this is a very good movie.
0: <laughs> Wait, that's not where I thought the end of your sentence was going to land. I'm so confused. <laughs> Wait, okay. So I also really love this movie. And I have now seen it three times. I saw it for the first time when they came out in the movie theater. I remember really not liking it. And part of that really is because when I go to watch novel, you used to have movie, taste. I want to see red, I want to see colors, I want to see beautiful eyeliner, like, you know, like, you want all of that, like, classic Almodovar stuff, like, you want all of the classic Almodovar visuals, and what you get here is basically gray, and then you get, like, a bunch of, like, flush toned dolls and, like, weird giant balls made out of cloth. And you're just like, wait, like, this is not what I signed up for. And of course, there's, it's a beautiful movie, but it's also just so chilly. And even though it's extremely elegant, it's, you know, like, compare it to something like Volvere, and you're just sort of like, what is this? Like, like, whatever, like, crisis you're, like, going through, like, get over it. Um, anyway, I saw it for the second time. I think like last year when we watched it together, and then we and then like yeah, when I rewatched it yesterday for the third time, I just sort of fell in love with it because I think that so Alma has gotten some criticism within Spain for sort of like being very divorced from reality. Again, like we've talked about this so many Gasp. times, where his movies don't really take place in a sort of contemporary Spain. I think this movie makes that extremely unavoidable. Like the whole movie sort of takes place in Toledo, which is this medieval town of like an hour outside of Madrid. It was shot in Galicia, but the point is that it sort of looks, it has this like, uh, like, very old fashioned, almost fairy tale castle uh, looking environment. I think Robert's own house, in which he's sort of like the Dr. Frankenstein slash like Dr. Moreau um, figure, he's basically sort of like a fairy tale monster, right? Like, where he's just like bringing in these victims and like experimenting on them. Um, and so, I think one of the re. I I'm just going to lay it out there. I am a straight cis person. I am not going to understand, like, the full spectrum of, like, the queer experience. But I think one of the reasons why the trans stuff sort of, like, bothered me less is that it seemed so much, it seemed so divorced from... Real life trans experiences are like. It doesn't even seem to take place in our time, even though it's technically set in 2012. Uh, because all of these things sort of just like refer back to fairy tale imagery or sort of, yeah, to a sort of like non realness.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it is certainly a version of Beauty and the Beast.
0: Yes. And like we get these like, Robert has these, like, beautiful odalisks everywhere where you... And so much of this movie is just about, like, this sort of <laughs> unfortunately timeless quality of men wanting to, like, make women into, like, what they want them to look like. Like, Robert is basically creating what he clearly thinks of as sort of, like, a piece of clay and, like, modeling him into, like, what he wants to see. I think of that really uh, famous picture of the Grand Odalisque by Jean-Auguste Dominique Ingres, and it's basically about like a man who is like sexualizing a woman who wouldn't exist because she doesn't have like the vertebrae of like a real life woman, and even when you see Vicente working at his mom's dress shop, it's sort of all about like this man who is like dressing a mannequin that has no face and yeah you basically just have like a bunch of depictions of like women who are sort of like dressed and posed in a particular way and like they have no faces because they're props
1: they... they're set pieces
0: yes and i'm sure you're going to make a joke very soon about like what Dovar is doing is like autobiographical but, yeah, to me, it seems so much less about, like, a trans experience than, like, commenting on sort of, like, like how men sort of, like, mold women and then fall in love with, like, the images that they've made. And maybe I'm taking, like, maybe I'm sort of, like, forcing a more heterosexual reading on a queer film and... Like, that's certainly possible. But I guess, like, that's what sort of stood out to me.
1: See, I would actually agree with you. And I think that, like, this is actually more of a heterosexual film than a queer film in in any way. Like, I, I think that Almodovar certainly always traffics in the uh, his idea of woman as opposed to, like women's actual experiences a lot of the time and um, this is maybe in a self-aware way maybe not like highlighting that um, and actually this painting that you're speaking about um, the Grand Obelisk, reminds me a lot of Kika actually the rape scene in Kika because uh, during that scene there's a pan up to the like painting above their bed and it's very similar to this
0: yes it is.
1: And it's very much just like the image of the idea of woman or whatever. And actually, I think like the rape scene specifically, it seems like Paul, the guy raping her in Kika, is like he doesn't necessarily even care who he is raping, just that there is something there to rape. just yes. that There is some woman shaped thing to have sex with which is why he was willing to have sex with his sister. And I think that, like, that is kind of mirrored in this film with, like, Robert. It seems like almost even forgetting that the man that he, is, that he has subjected this sex change to, that he is now having sex with regularly, it seems, it seems like he has almost forgotten that this is a man.
0: He's forgotten that this is what he believes to be a man who raped his daughter.
1: Yes, Like, he is falling in love with this creature that he has created because he doesn't remember or doesn't want to remember the, like, actual horrors that he thinks this man committed.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the other things that I really found really notable about this movie. Um, Because... It is like in many ways a kind of rape revenge movie where <laughs> Robert like avenges what he thinks is his daughter's rape by basically putting like this supposed rapist in like a position to also be raped uh, by like giving him a vaginoplasty and then you sort of like have like this sort of like more classical kind of rape revenge film at the very end with Vera avenging herself or Vicente avenging himself but either way I mean that's also not like a classic rape revenge scenario and so I think that like those tweaks to that formula are really fascinating and sort of like what really stood out to me. But I also, (laughs) so Amy Schumer has this like phrase called like a grape, right? Where it's sort of like a gray rape, which is sort of like what happens between Vicente and Norma, Robert's daughter, where it's not really quite clear like where the sexual assault begins because Vicente is, from Norma's perspective, like, maybe it's raping her, uh, but also, like, Norma seems extremely confused and doesn't know what she wants until she finally does decide, like, she wants this to stop.
1: She's so naive and sheltered, it seems, by her father that she doesn't even know what's happening. She and Vicente, on the way to the tree where she gets assaulted, basically, she they're having conversations past each other, where, like... He's asking her what pills she's on, and she's telling him, like, here are all of these psych meds I'm on, whereas he's like, oh, no, what?" he thinks he's asking, like, what party drugs are you on?
0: Yeah, and he's, I think, like, pretty, like, clearly, like, meant to be, like, very high and, like, not really knowing what's going on, although how he gets on that motorcycle afterward, that's a different question. And so, yeah, this is sort of, like, like a classic case of, like, grape, I guess, Um But it also sort of, (laughs) like, I think talk to her at, like, a lot of this, where there's so much sympathy for Javier Camara's character, who is absolutely a rapist, but, like, sort of a big chunk of that movie is geared toward giving him as much sympathy as possible. And I thought this was sort of a little bit in that same vein of, like, what if like we're sort of like too hard on the rapists or like the guys that we think are the rapists, which, which I me think, think is like what
1: is Almodovar trying to talk about here?
0: <laughs> uh, I mean, there's also like the defense of Roman Polanski, who it's like a whole other issue. But yeah, I think that even like outside of like the trans stuff, sort of like looking at this as part of like his larger work of like who he wants to give sympathies to you know, it's not great. This is certainly a trope that he keeps coming back to. Um, it's a complicated one and it's not my favorite tendency of his. Um, and that's what I will say about that.
1: I I will agree with what you said about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would love to get back to the, um, the chilliness, the coldness of this film that you talked about because I think that there are a number of connections that we wanted to make between this and Kika, and I think that that's one of them, actually, is the Kika feels so warm and so full of life and bubbly, and uh, this one feels cold and distant and not not full to the brim with energy in the way that Kika is, obviously because one's a comedy and one's a horror drama, but like I think that can even be seen in the amount of dialogue each of them has. Like, Kika is overstuffed with dialogue. Like, the translation we watched clearly didn't even have every single line of dialogue translated because the text would have gone by so fast that we couldn't have even read it all. Whereas, like, in The Skin I Live In, there are such long stretches between dialogue at times. And I think he... This is probably something that Almodovar developed during his 20 years or whatever that he had between these films, but his precision of dialogue is just so much more effective in The Skin I Live In because of its sparseness, as opposed to Kika, which part of what makes Veronica 4 character work so well is the denseness of dialogue that she has, But I think that, like, that also then loses the viewer in a way that the sparing dialogue in The Skin I Live In keeps us kind of entranced because every sentence might mean something. Everything, like, there's so much more Pedro speak in The Skin I Live In than there is in Kika.
0: Hmm. I don't know if I agree with that last point. Really, But I mean, like, yeah, I think it's also just like a much more visually driven film. And so much about like the skin I live in is about like watching and being watched. Um, and I don't know. I mean, like, it's obviously like, the work of like a guy who has like figured out like his craft. Um, so like, yeah, I mean, like, I think that makes sense.
1: And I, like, think it's also interesting the... I thought that The Skin skin I Live In is a beautiful movie. It is so well done, and the sets all just look so expensive and wonderful, and I would love to live in this very modern-looking old castle. But, like, I think it's an interesting contrast to Kika, because Kika is like so overstuffed with, like, the visuals and that's also like a very like younger Almodovar trope in general, but like then to come to the skin I live in, which is like all the way on the other side where it's practically empty and like everything in it is beautiful, but it is empty. Like it's so much more effective. I feel like than Kiko was in a way because it didn't draw its focus away from the story. It kind of highlighted the focus of the story.
0: And I think one of the ways that, the movie also gets at that timeless quality is through sort of like this like mix and matching of different um, time eras and the interiors. Um, When you go down to Robert's laboratory, for instance, it's in this like glass cube that looks super futuristic. But then like outside of those glass cubes are these like stone walls. And then if you go into- It's been like
1: retrofitted for the- yeah.
0: And if you go into, like, his living room, for example, all of the furniture is, like, very contemporary and, like, very colorful. But then all of the walls are, like, very Victorian. And so, yeah, there is sort of this, like, outside of time quality that we've been talking about. Did you find the rape? Uh, Let me uh, specify which rape. (laughs)
1: God. Jeez. (laughs)
0: The one with uh, the Tiger Man. So there's like a scene. Yes, there's a scene that like very heavily echoes Kika's rape scene where the housekeeper, played by Marissa Paredes, um, we learn very early on in the movie that she's actually Robert's mother. Although like weirdly, that doesn't come as much into play as you would think. Um, But basically, she she has been the... the housekeeper uh, in this house forever because she was also the housekeeper for Robert's father who lived in that same house. And she sort of had this like bastard son, I guess, who turned out to be a kind of rapist who grew up on the streets. And so she unwittingly sees him on the news as he's doing like a kind of jewelry, jewel heist as he's like robbing a jewelry store. So he comes into the house. Well even though she
1: She doesn't see the heist until after he's in the house.
0: Oh. Because yes, they're watching you're
1: right. the TV together. Okay. Yes. And that's where he like turns and then starts tying her up and shit. But anyway.
0: So in contrast to Juana, who is sort of like complicit in her own uh tying up, basically, uh he forces his mother like into this chair and ties her up, and uh, basically they're talking about this prisoner because Vicente slash Vera um, has sort of cameras like trained into her room at all times. And so once Zeca finds out that there is another woman in the house, he goes to rape her believing that Vera is actually Robert's first wife. And for me there was this like weird little like a frisson of humor where he is completely convinced that like she is his dead wife. And so he talks to her like he knows her and Vera is completely confused about what's happening. And there's a sort of, like, similar attempt at a kind of, like, negotiation because Vicente slash Vera, like, wants to get out of his house and is like, let's run away together. Um, but the fact that, like, there is this, like, complete disjunct between who he thinks she is and, like, her confusion at, like, him talk like, saying, like, what she thinks is, like, complete nonsense to her. Like, that was, like, a little bit funny.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I found it funny necessarily, but it wasn't
0: like laugh out loud funny.
1: No, but it was a good, like, twist, a good turn. Because also, like, we're talking about this film as if you know the twist at the beginning. We don't. So, like, when you first watch this film, you don't know that Vera is actually Vicente. And so part of me was like, when I, I remember first watching this and thinking like, oh, wait, is this his dead wife? Like, is Robert keeping her locked up for some reason that like is good for her, that like she needs to be protected in this way or something and is like protecting her from herself in a way that like we don't yet understand. And so that does, I think, also add to I don't know if I would say the humor, but like the curiosity of it all yes
0: i I think that you're right in that like it's only quote unquote funny if you watch it like the second time around, but I also did find it like eh, mildly amusing, which sort of like ended up being another parallel in like the rape scenes
1: and of course, there is certainly the touch of humor that he is in a tiger costume, and is <laughs> yes like. He's legit wearing a tiger costume because it's like carnival or something. Yes. And it's that is humorous.
0: Like, he's like in a tiger costume while like the rest of this house is like super cold and super austere. And they're just like surrounded by weird little like flesh colored creepy dolls, including Vera. Exactly. One thing I did also appreciate about this film is that so much about like this film shocker is about skin and Elena Anaya uh, like throughout the movie just has like this like perfect completely poreless completely almost featureless skin and kill me <laughs> I think that's like the kind of thing that like we get extremely used to watching but everyone around her like, nobody else around her really looks like that. I mean, like, Norma does, like, a little bit because she's younger. But, like, this is, like, Banderas in his, like, the early ages. The early years of a sort of, like, more craggy face. Um, but and, hot
1: as always.
0: Of course. Marissa Paredes is, like, an older woman at this point. And so...
1: And like, then Zekka the, has the face scar.
0: Yes. And so, like, the characters around uh even like vicente has like this like gross wispy facial hair
1: okay but he's hot too
0: i didn't say that he wasn't i'm just saying that like everyone sort of like more or less looks like a normal person and then you have elena anaya's like very surreally poreless skin and so it sort of like takes the kind of thing that we expect from a movie or from, like, what an actress is supposed to look like, and creates, like, a sort of uncanny valley effect to it, which I thought was, like, very smart.
1: Yeah, I think that that's very apparent in, like, the scene early in the film where uh, Banderas' character is cutting out, like, a swatch of skin to lay on top of this, like, body form that he has that is her body form, that then it, like that is as smooth as she is and it kind of fades in but like from the body form to her in that scene that is like so seamless because of how like perfect her skin is that it she almost feels unreal.
0: Yeah. And then I think he like takes like a I don't know like a creme brulee torch or something at one point to her leg and it's like, can you feel this? And so there is sort of this like
1: I mean I'd let Antonio Banderas burn me like that.
0: <laughs> there is sort of this like skepticism, I guess, of like this type of like cinematic skin, which I thought was Skin-o-matic. like Cinematic. I'm leaving. <laughs> Bye. That's the end of the podcast right there. <laughs> Cut it out.
1: Great. Well, I will finish this podcast on my own. I like to talk <laughs> about how Ingu Kang is a terrible person and friend that I've never actually liked, and I will publish this so everybody knows it. That's fine. <laughs> Great. Anyway, sorry, you're saying the cinematic universe? Um,
0: yes, yeah, so the Amadovar cinematic universe. Um, yeah, I just thought that was. <laughs> oh my God, it really wasn't that funny. What's wrong with you?
1: <laughs> sorry. So I think there's one last thing we need to talk about before we wrap up our discussion of these films, and that's the ending of The Skin I Live In, which I think has a lot of connection to the ending of Kika, which we'll get into. But the way The Skin I Live In ends is that. Robert and Vera or Vicente are having sex in Robert's bed and she says she needs a lube and that there's some that she bought some lube earlier that day when she and Marissa Paredes' character went out on the town because Robert was trying to like trust her more. So she runs downstairs and grabs her purse which has lube in it but also has a gun. So she comes back upstairs and he is just like calling down to her like Vera where are you come back up here because he's just like a horny dude who wants to fuck her and she comes back upstairs and he's like so dumb at this point like he is clearly so like horny that he can't think about anything else because welcome to men and (laughs) so she walks in with her purse and just pulls the gun out and shoots him and kills him and then Marissa Paredes's character wakes up and is like I heard something and grabs a gun herself and goes into uh, Robert's room to like check on him and Marissa Paredes, his character gets killed too so then Vera or Vicente flees and goes into Toledo and goes back to his mother's small dress shop where he walks in and speaks to Christina who's the woman working there and his mother and they obviously do not recognize him and so he has this like very emotional scene with Christina where he confesses that like I am Vicente and has to kind of prove it by showing a dress that he had like made for her or something a few years prior that he was wearing. And it's this beautifully moving scene that for all that I was really disgusted by the earlier part of the story. And I think that's actually what colored a lot of my opinion of the movie over overall. What stuck with me at the end of the our first watching of it and yesterday is how beautiful the ending is, how moving it is that like he is able to go back to his mother and his home.
0: It is funny because both Kika and Vicente flee these like houses, these like big like manors, basically like full of dead bodies.
1: Everybody dies and they get to be happy.
0: Yes, and Kika is like, I'm just gonna go, like, to this random wedding, like, with a stranger that I've never met before, because that's who Kika is. And Vicente is like, I'm going to go back to my mom's dress shop, because that's obviously what makes sense for the character. I don't know, it's like a very, as you were saying earlier, it's like, honestly, like, a very sparse scene. But it's acted so subtly and we've been sort of waiting for this homecoming for such a long time because Vicente Sashavira has spent most of the movie a prisoner in this house that it just like, it's a happy ending. And yet it sort of like leaves you with this question of like, how is, how are they going to process this? Like, how is Vicente going to process this? How is like anyone supposed to like process anything? Yes. And so there are all of these, like, layers of questions, like, with this happy ending, and it's just, like, both really satisfying and also doesn't feel quite neat, but, like, in a very productive way. So much of the movie is about, like, control, and this is, like, a moment at which, like, the control has been wrested back but like, what are you supposed to now do with like this new independence? Um, even though it's a happy one, like yeah, I it's honestly like one of Amador's best endings.
1: I think this and Kika are the two most memorable endings of his work, to me at least.
0: And yet, you do not like either movie. <laughs>
1: Okay, I, I, you know what, I've changed my mind. I love Kika. Kika's the best movie ever made. Thank you so much for joining us for this bonus episode of All About Almodovar.
0: If you have any questions or compliments only, um, <laughs> you can email us at allaboutalmodovar@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I'm Ingu King.
1: I'm Daniel Schrader.
0: And if you're ever fleeing a house full of corpses, please do not run over to my house.
1: But you're welcome to come to mine.
0: Should we talk about the rape? Should we, like, ease into the rape? (laughs)